Gracious God, please be with us today as we study your holy word. We pray that your spirit would infuse not just our minds, but our hearts, that we would leave here more surrendered to your goodness and more eager for that goodness to flow out of us into the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we'll stop there and first just note that Paul begins by revisiting what we talked about last week, which is suffering and the suffering that is often tremendous that comes with the Christian life. And last week we offered examples of how many other Christians um, have suffered much more than we have suffered, martyrdom and all sorts of things. And now Paul pivots to say that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing or weighing with the glory about to be revealed to us. But then he pivots with this very interesting point that it's not just we who wait, but that the creation itself is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of God's children. Now, in order to understand Paul's thinking here, you have to understand that for Paul, when Adam sinned and humanity fell, the creation itself fell with us because we were given dominion or stewardship over the creation. And whenever God's image bearers are no longer exercising wise stewardship over the creation, that dominion turns inward and it becomes domination. And then the created order goes to war with itself because the human beings are not doing what God created the human beings to do. And that's exercise a wise and loving rule over the creation. And so Paul says that it's not just we who wait, but the creation itself is waiting because God's intent is holistic. It is to save the whole creation. Verse 21, he says, the creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, And then Paul says that the creation has been groaning in labor pains. There's a metaphor here of giving birth. And it's almost like this baby of the new creation is inside the church, but we have not yet gone into labor and experienced that full pain of birth. And this image of giving birth is a metaphor for bringing salvation into the world 
Uh, it is not limited to Romans. In John 16, 21, Jesus says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Uh, aside from using this metaphor of giving birth, I think Paul is saying something similar about the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed. But of course, we wait for something and give birth to something that we don't fully see. You know, Paul says, who hopes for what we see? Um, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I think it's Philip who often says that uh, waiting is the essence of the Christian life, and Paul would certainly agree, at least at this point in the epistle, we are waiting for something with patience, not just us, but the whole creation. But we also wait as people who have a down payment. Verse 23, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait. So we wait groaning inwardly for something to be born, but we do have the first fruits of the Spirit. And here, of course, Paul is speaking mainly to the collective we, the church, Now, of course, you as an individual have the Holy Spirit. I believe that. Paul would believe that. But Paul is addressing the church, and Paul is doing so through the lens of a Jewish feast that many of his hearers would be familiar with. It's the Feast of Pentecost, which predates Christianity. In Judaism, it was tied to two things. First, the giving of the law. Uh, where God came down at Mount Sinai. Pentecost commemorated that event. But Pentecost was also the Feast of First Fruits. At the beginning of the harvest, people would bring the first fruits of their crop to the temple to eat them in thanksgiving to God. The understanding was that the first sheaf was merely an installment of this massive harvest that they would soon enjoy. And so what Paul is doing in a very creative and brilliant way is tying these two themes together Um, because the church has been given the law of the spirit of life. So Paul has already been speaking about the meaning and relevance of the Mosaic law, and he's written about that elsewhere. But here he's talking about the law of the spirit of life, the giving of that law to the church. Uh, And then second, Paul is trying to awaken our imagination so that we envision the church as the first installment of God dwelling in and among his creation. We're like that first sheaf. Um, And so in the same way that the Holy Spirit dwells in the church now, our belief is that one day that the Spirit of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters, you know, cover the sea, that God will fully dwell with the whole creation. And so we're invited to see God's presence with the church, not as the end, right, but rather as the first installment, the down payment, the promise that God will one day fully fill the whole creation the way that we as a church have the Holy Spirit now. And so in verse 26, Paul then speaks about this spirit, and Paul speaks of the spirit as a helper in our weakness, as a spirit that intercedes with sighs too deep for words. 
Um, Paul does not use the same Greek word as we have in the Gospel of John, but it's very similar to John's understanding of the paraclete, which is one called alongside us to help. In fact, one translation of the paraclete in John's Gospel is the helper. And here Paul says the Spirit is a helper in our weakness, something alongside us, but also something within us. You have the Spirit interceding with sighs too deep for words, and Then we have God searching the heart, knowing what is the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit interceding for the saints according to the will of God. And so I mentioned this last week for those who have been brainwashed into thinking that the church made up the doctrine of the Trinity right after the Council of Nicaea. It is true that a lot of things kind of got solidified there in terms of Catholic Christianity, in terms of the battle between Arianism and the Catholic or Orthodox faith, but the seeds of a Trinitarian theology are very clear in Romans 8, right? You have God uh, offering the Son, God not withholding His Son, the Son interceding for us, the Spirit praying in us. You have this action, this movement between Father, Son, and Spirit that Paul intuitively is inviting the church into, and so it's very important for us to see the seeds of Trinitarian theology here as well. And we continue with verse 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, as it's written? For your sake we're being killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul begins this section by saying that the essence of our hope is that all things will work together for good for those who love God. Um, Interestingly enough, N.T. Wright's kind of counter thesis is that one way of translating this Greek could be that all things work for good through whom... Uh, for those through, wait, all things work together for good through whom those who love God, basically meaning that your life will be a conduit of love no matter what. I think in reality, the goodness of God is that both translations could work. And certainly what Romans 8.28 does not mean is that all things work together in accordance with our wishes or in accordance with our plan of uh, for how life should go, uh, but rather they work together for good. And so we can have some conversation about that. But in verse 29, Paul uses that language of foreknowledge and predestination. 
And I think it's really important to note that for Paul, at least in Romans 8, that what Paul speaks of is predestination for our life to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And in the context of Romans, this is a cruciform image. And so when Paul speaks of predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son in Romans, his intent is not to single out a special few to say that you alone get to enjoy the perks of heaven. In fact, this would be completely against what he said earlier about the church merely being the first fruits. Um, But this is about a large family, uh, as Paul uh, says in verse 29, so that he might be the firstborn within a large family. So whenever you think about this understanding of God's foreknowledge, God's grace, God's predestination at work in your life, um, whether this is good news or bad news, it is uh, a statement that your life is predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, which is ultimately about the cross uh, and our life being shaped by the pattern of the cross. And if that is bad, depressing news, Paul is quick to say, fear not, if God is for us, who is against us? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? I think it's important to note that Paul has already written extensively about the doctrine of justification. Uh, Justification, remember, is a legal or court metaphor. The point is that God has vindicated God's people, declared them to be in the right, in and through the Messiah, And when God, the ultimate judge, declares you innocent, how absurd is it for a mere human to bring a charge against you? But of course, I think that would also be true about yourself, uh, because we often bring charges against ourselves. Those of us who are blessed slash cursed with an overactive conscience, we have that voice in our head accusing us of not being right enough or good enough or smart enough. Um, Here, Paul says... Even to bring a charge against yourself is inappropriate. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. And so Paul began Romans 8 by saying, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here in verse 34, he reminds us, condemnation is completely inappropriate, whether it's someone else condemning us, and I think that would apply to us condemning ourselves. And then Paul offers that image from Daniel chapter 7, of the Messiah being at the right hand of God. For those of you who were part of that study uh, last semester, I keep saying semester, I guess it would have been in spring, uh, we had that image from Daniel 7 of the Ancient One next to the Ancient of Days, and that, of course, is equated with the Son of Man, picked up by the Gospel writers uh, who associate that figure with Jesus, And here Paul does something similar. Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And so for those of you who were not comforted enough by the Spirit praying inside of you, which Paul said already in Romans 8, now we are reminded that Jesus himself prays for you as well at God's right hand. And so what are we to say about these things? Well, We're more than conquerors through him who loved us, and that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And back to our earlier conversation about whether we're conduits of the new creation or 
agents of the new creation. Um, whatever word we choose matters less than that we have a proper understanding of how the new creation comes into being. And I think for Paul, Romans 8 kind of bookends with the two answers. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 39, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think for those of us wanting our lives to make a difference, um, this is the foundation that we return to every day, that it is impossible for something to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, Paul says, will he not with us give us everything else? And so, um, God's secure love is really the foundation of our work. And so one might ask, you know, Romans 8 is so happy, you know, after all this talk of sin and Adam and law and all the things we've been studying, Romans 8 is so cheery. Why can't we end the movie here? Why can't this be the end of Romans? Why do we have another eight chapters uh, well, now Paul is going to have to turn his attention to the problem that the Messiah's own people do not believe in him, right? Jesus said he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but we have a church filled with a bunch of Gentile goats. And so what of the Jews? Has God forgotten about them? And this is going to be Paul's focus in Romans 9 through 11. But for now, we'll stick with Romans 8. Uh, before things get more complicated again, I think it'd be good just to enjoy the love uh, that Paul's offering here and to focus on uh, this chapter that many have said is the centerpiece of the gospel itself.